Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm Greg Sesek from the Programs Department. Uh, if you don't receive it in the mail or by email and would like a copy, pick up the Compass newsletter on your way out. It has our January and February programs. Um, we're excited to have Raphael and Dean here tonight. Um, incidentally, um, Raphael was born on Bob Dylan's 17th birthday, and today just happens to be Elvis Presley's 79th birthday, in case you're wondering. Raphael was with the Baltimore Sun from 1977 until 2001. After leaving the paper, he joined the staff of the HBO drama The Wire. He also worked on NBC crime dramas Life and the Black Donnellys. He is the author of many books, including Turk House, a history of Baltimore's pioneering drug and alcohol treatment center for the poor. In 2010, he was nominated for an Edgar Award for The Wire, Truth Be Told, an encyclopedic companion to the television series. Dean Bartoli-Smith covers the Baltimore Ravens and the Orioles for the Baltimore Brew. His sports writing has appeared in the Press Box, Fan Magazine, Baltimore City Paper. He is the director of Project Muse, or M-U-S-E, at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, please help me in welcoming Raphael and Dean here tonight. Thank you. I wanted to sit next to you. Yeah. Yeah, it cost you. So it really is an honor to be here um, with my mentor, my friend, the person who, who has helped me uh, in this profession of writing. And it's really kind of a special moment for me. Uh, the last time I was here was uh, I published a book of poems called American Boy. And I was fortunate enough to come to this beautiful room and, and, and talk about that book. And so I, I wrote a book about the Ravens Super Bowl season. and. It really is a football book um, on many levels. For the last, I think, I've had this book rattling around inside me for the last 30 years. I was born and raised here and was wrenched away from here at the age of 16 and taken to Chicago shortly before uh, the Colts moved to Indianapolis. And I was fortunate enough at the age of seven to um, be at a Colts practice at Rogers Avenue um, and my dad had brought me there, and I was able to carry Johnny Unitas' uh, shoulder pads and helmet. And that, um, that's also very much a part of this book. Uh, I feel like I've been running underneath a Unitas touchdown pass. So, so what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the catalysts for writing the book. Um, I mentioned that I'm, I'm a poet, and this book really has its roots in poetry and in football poetry. Um, I think there are, for me, football is metaphor, it's timing, it's sound, it's, there are a lot of elements to it. I, you know, when I look at lines battling against each other, I think of stanzas moving down a field and, and, and things like that. Um, and, and the poem by James Wright, uh, Autumn in Martin's Ferry, Ohio, that, la that ends with, therefore their sons grow suicidally beautiful at the beginning of October and gallop terribly against each other's bodies. So that line, um, and, and since there is a lot of, or at least some section of the book about the football tradition in Ohio, um, 
each chapter starts with a poem. And <clears throat> when I moved back to Baltimore, um, I wrote a poem uh, called Trash Night Guilford. And in it, um, there, there was a section um, uh, that just kind of came out of nowhere about the Colts. And so as I started to become at, more acclimated to my hometown as I moved back, these, these old memories of Colts and, and things started, started flooding back. And I, I you know, was able to attend the Ravens game. So what I'll start um, by reading a, a couple of sections from the book that, that have to do with that have to do with poetry. And I live in, in Guilford, so that, that's where the setting is going to begin. At one time, the house next door had belonged to the Fusting family, and my dad had gone to Loyola High School with Bill. In the late 50s, my house hadn't been built, and the lot was a long and flat rectangular patch where the Fusting boys played tackle football. I described the scene in my poem, Trash Night. The number 11 bus to Canton rounds the corner like Jim Parker and gone are the days of the fusting boys playing tackle on an empty lot, disguised as Unitas, Barry, and more. My four-year-old son Quinn and I attended the first home game of the Ravens' 2010 season against the Cleveland Browns. The deafening sound in that stadium when the defense took the field made my son hold his ears. It's a roar that comes from the depths of the blast furnaces at Sparrows Point, from the lathes and the printing presses and the abandoned locomotives parked ju just a few blocks away. Our seats are at the back of the end zone along Russell Street, where you can look out and see the roundhouse of the B&O train station and Pigtown to the west, the place where the stories from the television show The Wire unfold in real life every day. The intimate concrete bowl of the stadium fills with the agitated timber of football fans chasing pigskin exploits from neighborhood to neighborhood, from Patterson Park to Homewood Field, to the disenfranchised gridiron ghosts wandering 33rd Street in search of Memorial Stadium. It's the sound of Mobtown, with its roots in the Pratt Street riots at the onset of the Civil War and in the Battle of 1814, when the citizen soldiers of the city repelled fleets of redcoats. My son and I became part of that tradition, but even so, I still wasn't quite hooked. On September 11, 2011, the Ravens opened at home against the Steelers, and I went with my father. I remember that receiver Anquan Bolden had dropped a pass at the goal line in the last few minutes in Pittsburgh, a play that helped end the Ravens' 2010 season. It was the 10th anniversary of the World Trade Center tragedy and the 9th anniversary of Johnny Unitas' passing away. My father and I walked down Martin Luther King Boulevard toward the stadium. He had once told me, I'm a fan as long as they don't embarrass the city. We both wore Ravens jerseys. It was the first game with the new franchise that we had ever attended together. The Ravens demolished the Steelers 35-7. to Ray Rice took the first snap and blasted through the hole for 36 yards into Pittsburgh territory. Two plays later, Bolden snared a 27-yard touchdown pass. And then something strange happened. The referee raised his arms and mistakenly announced, Baltimore Colts touchdown. <laughs> it was an unintentional nod to Unitas and all the former Colts who had embraced the Ravens, old friends like Lenny Moore and Bruce Laird. I looked at my dad in his Ray Lewis jersey and thought of his 60 years of following football in Baltimore. In that moment, I became a Ravens fan. In the fall of 2012, I coached my daughter Julia's grade school soccer team. We played at our home games on that field off Rogers Avenue where the Colts had practiced on a late August day in 1970. It's now called Northwest Park, and I often wondered if I was the only one who had experienced its storied past. I may have been the only parent who knew that the barn-like gymnasium on the side of the hill was once called the Bee's Nest. 
During the games, I, I would turn around and look at those wooden plank bleachers overgrown with grass. In my mind, I saw Mike Curtis carry John Unitas on his shoulder up the steps one more time. I've spent my life running under Unitas' touchdown pass. So that kind of started with that poem. Um, and <clears throat> we'll do one more exercise like that. Um, another poem that really inspired the book uh, was called Elegy for John Unitas. And it's written by Moira Egan, who's a Baltimore poet who lives in Rome, a Catonsville poet, actually. And I did an article on Moira for the Baltimore Examiner, I guess it was in 2008, and I went over to the AWP meeting, the Associated Writing Programs meeting, and um, Moira was there, and I wanted her to read this poem, and I would videotape her doing it, and she got about three-fourths of the way through and had to stop and was in tears, and I thought, here's somebody who I have a kinship with in terms of what the, what the Baltimore Colts means, and so I'll read you that poem, and then talk about how it influenced uh, chapter seven, which is called Blue Horseshoes, and, and read a little bit from that. My mother has tears starting in her eyes. She tells me that Johnny Yu has died. It's clear in a flash that defense stole an instant when the quarterback gets sacked. It isn't just Johnny she's mourning, but the slow stretch of Sundays lost, pouring milk for us children, coffee for them, and at game time, national premium. Pretzels, beer, shouts all afternoon, the punks, the bums, or a poor, pure Hail Mary swoon. The arc of Sunday's quickening twilight, bringing us to dinner for highlights of the game, of course. A family still intact, but just as in mythology, halcyon days can't last forever. Mothers and fathers don't stay together, although memories and the things left unsaid bind them ever, a razor-sharp thread. Number 19's dead. My mother's crying. We spend these years watching them dying out of order. Grandfather, dad, grandma. Those Sundays, that innocent era. She'd like us to go to his funeral, I know. But she would have to go alone. So, in writing the book, chapter 7, the introduction I, which I just read from was very much my personal football history and Chapter 7 dealt with the game that we played against the Indianapolis Colts. And it was a very odd game because we'd gone through a losing stretch. And the coach of the Colts had coached for the Ravens. And he'd come down with leukemia and had overcome that leukemia. And so there wasn't that, so, you know, in 2007, there was still that visceral kind of feeling about, uh, you know, that, 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 hatred of Ursae and that feeling about the Colts leaving. But this game had this sort of different aura. And then on the Wednesday before the game, you had uh, Ray Lewis announcing his retirement. So it, there were just so many stories in and around that one game. I thought, you know, this, you could really just write a book about that. Or you could write a book about the fact that um, we were able to repeat history and go back to the same place we'd made the mistake in 2011 for those playoffs. And we went back to New England. I mean, when does that ever happen? But there was so much uh, that went on in that season that I thought, you know, basically for my relatives who'd followed the Colts and had spent 12 years without a football team, many of whom had passed away, I wanted to write something that honored them. 
So what I'll do, and just to close, is I'll take you... So, you know, we, I write Chapter 7, Blue Horseshoes. I have a very clear path as to how it's going to go, yet I'm missing the final piece of the chapter. And I, I do, th I, I, you know, the chapter starts with the, uh, just a section of the poem, Elegy for John Unitas, and then, you know, Ralph, who helped me edit the book, and I went back and forth on where, who's, who's the, and, and the editor at Temple University Press, who, how do we end that chapter and... and Really, it was always just right in front of me. Um, I had the answer, and the answer came in Moira's mother, from Moira's mother, Betty Egan. And so I'll, the game is over. We've won the game. And now we'll, I'll, I'll read you the last part of the chapter. Raven's fan Betty Egan watched the game at her granddaughter's house. She used to work fever, feverishly on Sunday mornings in her Catonsville home during the 1960s and 70s to have dinner ready before the Colts game so she could join her family in the living room. They would watch the first half over pretzels and beer, and the children had their own treats. Dinner was always served at halftime. She'd cook pork roast, her favorite, or chicken, turkey, or roast beef with all the trimmings. She had eight mouths to feed, including her husband, the children, and her in-laws, all of whom lived in her house. Her father-in-law, Fast Eddie Egan, had attended St. Mary's Industrial School for boys a few years after Babe Ruth and had fashioned one of the slugger's old bats into an axe handle. Her husband, Michael, was a poet and a teacher. After halftime, the family would take their meals into the living room and watch the rest of the game. If the game wasn't sold out, which almost never happened in the 1960s, they would listen to it um, in the radio, on the radio. Back then, her daughter, Shauna, the Gaelic name for the Shannon River, went upstairs to play with her baby dolls. She's now a diehard Ravens fan. Betty vividly remembers a playoff game in 1964 when Jim Brown ran all over the heavily favored Colts gaining over 100 yards as Cleveland beat Baltimore 27 to nothing. He had one of the best games of his career, and I went into labor, she said. <laughs> she had dated a football star in high school and learned the rules of the game, and then the Colts came along. Before that, she didn't know football from the man on the moon. She went out to Western Maryland College to watch the Colts practice and flirted with Gino Marchetti. Move over, Blondie, said Artie Donovan. I need to talk with Gino. Donovan lifted her up and moved her a few feet away. That was the time I got picked up by Artie Donovan, she said. <laughs> Betty was there to meet the Colts at Friendship Airport, now BWI, <coughs> when they returned from the 1958 championship game. She received a sticker there that she still has on her back door. It reads, Baltimore Colts, 1958. Her son Patrick has first dibs on the door. She still watches the grainy videos of her favorite player, Johnny Unitas, on the computer. He was magnificent. He always did the right thing. I love to watch that man's style. Betty's daughter Moira followed in her father's footsteps as a poet and now lives in Rome, Italy with her husband, the poet and translator Damiano Albeni. They watch the Ravens via the web, often into the wee hours of the morning. Albeni even favors the Ravens over his beloved Roma soccer club. Moira has published three volumes of poetry and her work has been selected for the Best American Poetry Anthology. She wrote an elegy for Johnny Unitas on the day he died to console her distraught mother. Those Sunday dinners were long gone and it was the end of an era in Baltimore but Betty remembered. And Betty enjoyed watching the Ravens beat the Colts in the playoffs 24-9. She no longer had to rush around in the morning making Sunday dinner for eight people, and she has moved past the heartbreak of the Colts leaving for Indianapolis. She enjoyed the game, but the Colts had become just another team to beat. The Colts don't bother me anymore because the Ravens are so damn good. Thank you.
Thanks, Dean. What I learned from Dean's work is um, up here you can pick any subject matter you want. It can be football, it can be organized labor, it can be um, architecture, and then under that you have Baltimore, and under that you have family. And his book is about the Ravens up here, but deep underneath it's about family. And um, <clears throat> my stories are very much the same way. Um, today is would have been Elvis's 79th birthday. Um, perhaps he's uh, having a peanut butter sandwich somewhere right now. Uh, and people say, oh, your, your stories are about Elvis. And I'm like, no, they're about a woman named Miss Bonnie who had a bar at the corner of Fleet and Port that was a shrine to Elvis. And then underneath that, I mean, if Ma Miss Bonnie had had a, a, a bar consecrated to Conway Twitty, these stories would be about Conway Twitty because, I mean, thank God they're about Elvis because it helps sales. But, um, <laughs> but this is a city of people. Um, people who, you know, I've spent time in New York. I've I spent four to five years in L.A. Um, writing for television. And I was not interested in the people there. I'm not saying I dislike them, but they didn't move me. Um, some of you rock and roll fans may know that Keith Richards has a couple of solo albums out. And when he was uh, uh, not happy with Mick, because Mick's all about the this and Keith is all about um, the music, uh, Keith wrote a song called You Don't, you Don't Move Me Anymore. And um, in Baltimore, people will move you for better or for worse. I'm going to read from a story that actually has large scenes set in this building. It's called Wedding Day, and uh, it has um, some aspects of it that touch on Elvis and Miss Bonnie's Elvis bar. And uh, I envisioned, I, I attended a wedding almost 30 years ago at the Basilica, and I imagined um, the wedding party coming here for the reception. So all they had to do, and in, in my fiction, those are two great temples. You know, you know, Sister Mary Margaret would probably sit me in the corner for this, <laughs> but to me, this is as great a temple as the one across the street. Maybe greater because it's more diverse in terms of um, the breadth and the scope of the intellectual output. Um, and marriage and relationships and fidelity and betrayal are, are large themes in my work. I was the first, uh, as far as I know, except for my crazy Aunt Sylvia side where things really went high, haywire early, um, I am the first divorced person in my family going back generations. And um, it... Uh, Everything's good, and everybody, you know, we're a very strong family, but it was very unsettling. And, and I wrote the story around the time of my divorce, so when the wedding party goes from the basilica over here for the reception, I had the bride and groom sit under a sign that said, New Fiction. 
and um, I didn't make a big deal out of it, but, you know, just a little ornament to, uh, I mean, what are relationships besides some combination of uh, truth and fiction and what we choose to believe of both? I'm not even talking about lies. I'm just talking about how we get along. You know, we get along sometimes cutting little corners, little fibs, you know, or as the nuns would say, I'm, I'm sure these two right here are heavy Catholics, Rosigliano and Pompa, right there in row five. The near occasion of sin. Okay? I mean, if, when you're raised Catholic and those little phrases get in your head, you know, I'm convinced that people raised in um, heavy faiths, whether you're a believer or not, but just anything that's got a lot of theater to it, be it Judaism or, or, or heavy Protestantism or, or Catholicism, those folks often grow up to be really good storytellers. Uh, you know, I, I remember being in Catholic school and the nuns would say, oh, here's a good Catholic right here in the front, Mr. Bill Hughes from Locust Point. Um, you would, you, they'd tell you to scoot over so your guardian angel could sit by you. You know, you put that into a six-year-old kid's head, that's heavy shit, you know? Like, um, not that it, my guardian angel ever helped me with my math test, you know? And there's another good Catholic, Anne Lelordo, walking in the room from Long Island, New York, and a fabulous poet also. So <clears throat> this whole idea of uh, devotion, um, near occasions of sin, white lies, how about that one? You know, a lie is a lie, but a white lie, that is a whole, you get a PhD just in white lies, you know, or fibs. Um, so I have... A young woman from the wedding, not the bride, but one of the ushers and one of the bridesmaids, attend the wedding, attend the reception, and they go to Miss Bonnie's Elvis bar. And they play a trick on Miss Bonnie and the patrons. And because they're all dressed up, they've come from this wedding, they say, we just got married. And, you know, just a couple of hard questions would reveal that it was a fib, but we want to believe. So no one asks the hard questions. And Miss Bonnie has the bride. They didn't have time to get a ring. It's this whole cockamamie story, you know. Roxanne goes fishing for a wedding ring in the fish tank where five rings from Miss Bonnie's five husbands, um, four men, one she married twice, okay, uh, are, she, are, in the fish, are in the fish tank. And Miss Bonnie says, uh, here's like a little toy, little... little fishing rod, and, and whatever one you catch, you can keep. So Miss Bonnie says, how the hell did you get a priest to say the magic words without jumping through all them goddamn hoops? And Basilio rubbed his thumb and forefinger together and said the usual way. Well, well, laughed Miss Bonnie. It's good to know they didn't change everything in the church. But did, didn't all go so smooth, said Basilio. He held Roxanne's hand in the air and said, no time for a ring. Stores closed, said Roxanne. Wedding ring, said Bonnie, as though they'd asked her for a bag of potato chips. <laughs> Hell, said Bonnie. Come here, girl. Roxanne walked behind the bar to a 100-gallon home of submerged Graceland and three generations of Holy Rosary Spring Carnival goldfish floating in and out of Graceland's empty rooms. The path to the king's front door paved with bands of gold. Ever been fishing, honey, said Miss Bonnie, reaching behind the cash register for a toy rod with a paperclip hook. 
Basilio hopped up on the bar, his head over Roxanne's shoulder, and the regulars followed, Ted the Clown, the drunken Carmen, and Mr. Voliotikis leaning in hard solitude upon his walker. Fish, said Roxanne, taking the little toy rod. You don't want to stick your hand in the muck, said Bonnie, pointing to the five rings nestled in slime. That's marriage, the muck. Go fish, said Basilio. Ted the Clown scurried around the bar to stand alongside Roxanne, and Carmen the drunk twirled on her bar stool like a kid. Don't hurt the fish, said Carmen. You can't hurt them fish, said the clown. Don't crowd her, said Bonnie. Which one, asked Roxanne, dropping a line into the tank. Anyone, said Bonnie. Got one, squealed Roxanne. So quick, said Carmen. Lickety split, yodeled the clown. Roxanne turned to Basilio with the dripping ring, but when he reached out for it, Bonnie snatched it away and wiped it clean. Not yet, she said, passing the little rod to Basilio. It's your turn now. Oh boy, he thought, hopping down from the bar with the ring Trudy had once slipped on his finger deep in his pocket. He's got his real wedding ring in his pocket from the marriage that just busted up. Holding the rod over the bubbling water, Basilio asked Bonnie which ring came from which husband. If, he wondered, one was any luckier than the others, and the barmaid said, you see where they all wound up. (laughs) Basilio let the hook sway above the tank until the crowd was hypnotized, lowered the line, and then slipped a hand into his own pocket and said, bingo. Turning to Roxanne, he stood with the dry ring on the end of his hook, unsmiling, four others still in the tank. Such Such dexterity at turns charming and nauseating, had ultimately convinced his wife to leave, a truth that Basilio would try to stuff into poor boxes and sewer holes for years to come. Bonnie let the couple out from behind the bar, handed Basilio the ring Roxanne had plucked from the aquarium, gave Roxanne the ring Basilio had reeled in, and ordered them to trade. Roxanne's ring was too small. It stopped at her knuckle, and she slipped it onto her pinky. Basilio's moved along his finger without a hitch. Now kiss her, said Bonnie. Yeah, said Carmen. Right in the kisser, said the clown. Show some respect, said Mr. Voliotikis. Their lips touched, and a current passed between them to light every bulb in the bar and even run the ice machine. Love, marveled Bonnie, before turning for the stairs that led to her apartment above the bar. You kids enjoy yourselves, she said. I'll be right back. We're married, said Basilio. What now, said Roxanne. Ted slipped behind the bar to tipple a little of this and some of that before bringing Basilio a beer and a glass of white wine for Roxanne and a goblet from which no customer had ever drank. And with the goo-goo eyes of the regulars bearing down upon them, the newlyweds could not enjoy themselves or leave without saying goodbye to Bonnie, whose absence had changed the room. And then what happens is while Miss Bonnie's away, going upstairs to, uh, to get something to give the newlyweds, the customers began harassing the wedding couple with ridiculous questions and um, their own hurts, in a way, their own wounds. Uh, you know, when we ask questions of others, often we're just projecting our stuff onto someone else. Um, Basilio tells the story that the bar was just 
another neighborhood gin mill selling boiled eggs and pickled onions. If you bump into somebody of a certain age who says there were pickled onions in the bar, you know they were from a real neighborhood, it was a real bar, and uh, they had spent more than a little bit of time in it. My father, my mother used to tell when my father had been drinking, he would come home and his fingers would be all red from the dyed pistachios. You don't see too many red pistachios anymore. They used to come in the little things that gumballs would come out of. And she, you know, a lot of uh, wives will like smell the husband to see if he smells like, well, my mother had to do was look at his fingers and if they were red, she knew. I mean, he worked on the tugboats in Fells Point. You didn't have to go far to find a cold one. This was just another neighborhood gin mill selling boiled eggs and pickled onions until Bonnie's last husband died, said Basilio. And when he dropped dead, Bonnie started putting up pictures of Elvis to make herself feel better. Roxanne shifted to take in the massive collage that was Miss Bonnie's Elvis grotto and was particularly taken by a Graceland postcard of the tux and gown that Elvis and Priscilla had worn on their wedding day. Anybody here been to Graceland? Anyone? Outside. You can... Uh, they have Elvis's tux and Priscilla's wedding gown like behind glass, like it's George and Martha Washington or something. Um, feeling ignored, Ted the Clown leaned across the table so far that his rubber nose nearly poked Roxanne in the face, his head bobbing on a pencil neck. You don't think people marry clowns, he said, smacking himself on the back of his head until the red ball popped off of his nose. It happens every day. Thank you. So the, the connecting theme, obviously, for the evening is uh, between two Baltimore boys or kids that grew up to write about their beloved hometown. We're, we're happy to take questions, and then maybe after 15 minutes or so, uh, we'll go to the back and sign books. Hey, you could wait to ask a question until I get to you with the mic. Um, not that we can hear you, but the program is recorded for podcasts. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Good evening. Very good presentation. Um, Mr. Smith, I want to ask, in your book, do you talk about the I-95 rivalry between Washington and Baltimore in terms of the Redskins and Ravens? I'm from Washington, D.C., so it's always the dilemma each year. Some of my relatives support Washington, some support Baltimore. I'm in between. So what do you say? So Chapter 5 is about the Redskins game, and I start out Chapter 5. <clears throat> I was living in... D.C. area in 2000 when the Ravens won the Super Bowl and Tony Kornheiser published an article that said D.C. fans root for Baltimore, only a Raven lunatic would do that. And I sent a note to the um, Washington Post excoriating D.C. and the Redskins and, he, and they published it in the Post. But um, there were families and I found a family that the father had been, the whole family had been Redskins fans, and when the Ravens won in 2000, the father, because he liked Edgar Allan Poe, jumped over to the Ravens, and it caused this strife um, within, within the family. But, yeah, so that chapter kind of goes into that. You know, growing up here, we didn't really know the Redskins. We never even thought about them when the Colts were here. I mean, it just was not even, and there's the, um, the sort of relationship with George Preston Marshall and things like that where he wanted you know, and even in the early 50s, he didn't want us to have a team. So, um, but yeah, that, that I, did, I did go into that a little bit and was fortunate to find places where there, there's the kind of fracturing. But I have, I also, my, in my neighborhood, 
in Alexandria, there was a mailman who'd followed the Redskins for 50 years and would go to every game dressed in a burgundy sweater, and uh, and he, he, you know, would tell me stories about delivering mail to Richard Nixon and all the, and, and, and you know, I got into this good relationship and really felt bad for him that they weren't playing better, so. I get asked that all the time. What's the difference between Baltimore and and Washington? And it's exactly what Dean said. We we don't even think about them. You know, these are separate planets. If if I never have to go south of Annapolis for the rest of my life, I'll be happy. First, I'd like to make an um, addition to your joke about marriage and the rotten muck of marriage. Um, I just heard this the other day. There are three phases of marriage. The engagement ring, the marriage ring, and then suffering. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not married, so. <laughs> no, I wanted to say something about Paul Blair dying recently. Oh, yeah. and, uh, he died, I think, the same age as United, 69, if I'm not yep. wrong. And if you could say anything about how great Paul Blair, Blair was in the Orioles. I'll take 66. it first. And then, Paul Blair is a favorite of both Dean and, and myself. Um, my best Paul Blair story is back in 67, 68, 69 when, when the Orioles had real just, just wonderfully wonderful teams. That, there's a good writer's phrase, wonderfully wonderful teams. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how it happened, but a handful of the players would come down and ride the tugboats with the tugboat men, like late at night, half a load on, and my father, who was not a sports fan, my father's a crabber and a fisher, he swore Paul Blair was one of the players that would take tugboat rides, which is kind of a thrill if you think of it, um, for people not accustomed to growing up, you know, in the old neighborhoods. And so, since my father said it, I believed it, and I spent, you know, the rest of my life, I'm 55 now, that's a good 40 years from when the Orioles were uh, a really good team, Believing Paul Blair rode tugboats with my dad in the Baltimore Harbor. So how many years ago was the tribute to Brooks, Dean? About five years? About five years ago, there was a big tribute to Brooks at the Meyerhof to raise money for something. And if you read any of the obits on Blair, he was called Motormouth. He loved to talk. He just would talk to anybody. So I go up, and I'm like, Mr. Blair. And I lay out this, you rode tugboats. I've never been on a damn tugboat. He, he had, it was a complete fiction. Like, it was some other player. My father got him mixed up. So the, story, the essay I wrote was, Paul Blair never rode a tugboat. Um, and it's just amazing. And, and, you know, that's how bad history gets written. Um, and thank God I had the opportunity to meet Mr. Blair and ask him directly, uh, so let's say I never had that opportunity, and somebody says, Alvarez, you know, we need an obit on, on, on Paul Blair. Blah. I would have written in there, love to ride tugboats in the late 1960s. Um, so, and I'll pass it to Dean, who can speak of Mr. Blair's athletic excellence. Well, you, you, when, you, when I bought my first baseball glove and it was finished, finished being cured of, with oil, the first thing you did was want to go out and emulate him. He was the player that you, that you copied his manner, mannerisms. You, you, caught, you tried to catch fly balls like him when you were playing in the sandlot. You, you played shallow so that you could run back like he did and, and, make, and make those kinds of catches or catch the ball with one hand. And when he batted, he had a very distinct sort of sneaky style where he, 
very slowly wave the bat back to the pitcher, and we, we emulated that too. He was, he was my favorite player. My grandmother got me um, an Oriole uniform when I was six or seven and ironed his number six on there and his name and um, made a sign for when I went to the game that said, Yankees beware, here comes Paul Blair. And you know, he was the epitome of cool. I mean, he just, you know, he was like a lithe snake that could just uncoil at any moment and, and he batted that way, and he played the field that way. He, he was just burst, bursts of, like, furious action. And if you made a mistake as a pitcher, he could put one in the left field bleachers. I mean, if you got the ball up to him, and he got hit in the face with a pitch, and that sort of sent his, his career in a different way. But, man, he was, he, was, he was the heart and soul, I think, of that team. And I think when you hear Jim Palmer say anything like, he's the reason I'm in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, um, but I really got pissed off at Palmer. They're interviewing him about Blair's death, and all he talks about is how he's in the Hall of Fame. It was typical Palmer. The one funny thing is when we were talking with him at the Brooks event is that he, was, he had zero patience for today's ballplayers in as much as they didn't want to focus on catching the ball and learning how to play defense. Yeah, Adam Jones is, is often um, referred to or compared to Blair. And Blair told the story like, okay, I went out there in spring training when Jones first joined the team, and I tried to, you know, here's the great Paul Blair. I'll tell you how much we love Paul Blair. We forgave him for becoming a Yankee, okay? Um, I don't think Brian Roberts might get booed this year when he shows up in pinstripes at Camden Yards. Not, of course, he'll hurt himself, you know, getting out of the shower or something and won't play for 80 games. But um, what was I getting ready to say? Oh, oh, Blair said that Jones was not interested in learning anything from him which I thought was uh, foolish. So in, in here, there's, uh, you know, I originally thought I was going to write a book that, that and it may still called Bleeding Orange, so I was managed to sneak a couple of moments of Orioles in here, and one of which was in the first game of the 2012 season, the Bengals came to town, and, and we beat them 44-13 to 13 or something, and, and Ed Reed came out of center field to make this, interception at the end and, and, and I got to write a paragraph about my love for Paul Blair as the greatest center fielder in Baltimore. So I was I managed to sneak in a couple of Oriole moments. Do you have a question? No? Oh okay. <clears throat> Someone else? Ask a hard reporter's question, Lolo. Well, I've, I've heard it say that a magician doesn't reveal his tricks. Um, uh, some of you who read literary fiction may know a woman by the name of Susan Minot. She released a collection of short stories about 25 years ago called Monkeys, which is a fabulous book. And she answered that question by saying, all of her fiction is emotionally autobiographical, which I thought was a beautiful answer. Um, some of my characters are composites. Some are just straight-up real-life people, like Miss Bonnie. Um, the Basilo character is based loosely on me. Um, Grandpop is based loosely on my grandfather. I'm, I'm devoted if I have enough years left. I mean, I don't think I'll ever live long enough to write all the stories the stories are waiting in line in my head, really, like pushing each other to get next in line. And um, I am trying to write a history 
of the margins of life in Baltimore, the margins. Um, you don't find many politicians in my books. And if there is, there'd probably be Willie Don just because he was such a character, you know. You gotta love a guy that gives the finger from a parade. <laughs> because somebody's holding up a sign that says, Schaefer stinks, and he gives them the finger. I mean, I swear to you, Schaefer was my Polish grandmother who went into politics, you know. Um, so uh, there was a Ted the Clown. I mean, you, you went to Miss Bonnie's a couple times, didn't you, Ann? Ted the Clown, it took me years to realize he was just a drunk. I, I, you know, his wife called me up once and said, you got to stop bringing him that blackberry brandy. He's just using you, hon. I know you think he's something, but he's just a goddamn drunk. This is his wife, you know. How, you know, so anyway, I'm, I'm trying to document life in Baltimore from about 1920 through around 2020. And 1920 is when my Spanish grandfather landed here. You know, I'll tell you my family's Statue of Liberty story. You, you read all this, you know, immigrant uh, uh, fiction and immigrant documentation and essays and coming to the new world. My grandfather was like a 20-year-old working as a laborer on an English steamship. He was back in the days of uh, coal fired boilers on ships. His job was to make sure the firemen, on a ship, the term fireman is used for the coal shoveler. It doesn't mean the guy who puts out fires. And he had to make sure that every time the fireman turned around, there was enough coal there to shovel in a shovel full. And back then, um, Fells Point, which real old timers know as Broadway, and only the yups call Fells. I hate when they call it Fells. Absolutely hate it. Um, was a lot of Spanish and or, or uh, ethnic seamen's clubs. And my grandfather went to the Spanish seamen's club, got bombed, passed out, came to, the ship was gone. Welcome to America. <laughs> that, that, that was my family's Statue of Liberty story. If time for a couple more? Miss Pompa, come on, hon. Well, I heard you on NPR this morning, and I, I, you stated how you were such a no, I've interviewed Johnny many, many times. I, I love Johnny. He's got roots, right? Oh no. no. Leland, Mississippi, by way of Beaumont, Texas. No, no. No, I I was just possessed by Johnny sometime in the mid seventies and it it's I mean the Beatles changed my life. Um, Elvis is the king of rock and roll, but somehow I listen to Johnny. Yeah, I listen to Johnny every day as my ex-wife can attest. <laughs> yes, sir. Raphael, is Miss Bonnie still there? Uh, Miss Bonnie, I wrote her obit in The Sun um, maybe 15 years ago, and uh, we had a, an editor-in-chief there named John Carroll who, um, not everyone felt this way, but this told me that he had more of a heart than people thought he had. He, he made sure Miss Bonnie's obit went out on A1. Not the whole obit, but it, it said, Miss Bonnie dies, you know, obit, page A12. Uh, her little bar has been turned into a gentrified urban mansion monstrosity. It's the ugliest building in East Baltimore. You, you could not recognize it. It's got deck upon deck upon this upon that. I, I'm dying to knock on the I just can't bring myself to knock on the door and ask the people, do, do you know where you're living? Do you know what, 
the stuff that went down here, you know? Um, Ted the Clown, if you wouldn't buy him a drink, he was a drunk who was always bumming drinks, he'd put a hex on you. He'd stare at you. And then Bonnie'd throw him out. Get out of here, you goddamn clown. And he was a clown. Um, but his, his white face was all messed up and he, his nose was always on crooked. I mean, I wish I, I wish I had the imagination to make up. A, and what was his name? Was his name, you know, Bubbles or Bozo? No, Ted the Clown. <laughs> uh, another question. How'd you feel about the demise of uh, Memorial Stadium? Well, let me quote Mrs. Dean Bartoli-Smith on that one, who is from a... Uh, a godforsaken state called New Hampshire where the women are very, uh, let's say they're not as emotional as we are here in Baltimore. And she listens to me and him jabbering and crying about John Unitas, and she goes, 300 people a year are murdered in the city of Baltimore, and all you idiots care about is they tore down Memorial Stadium. That's kind of how we feel about it. I do have a question, Raphael. You may know it, the answer to it. There's a bar in Baltimore that is like a hardware store. And it's in East Baltimore. And I've never been able to find it. John, John Waters always uh, practices it. And Going way back? Uh, no, I think it still exists. No, no, I mean, it's it's been around for a long time? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one across from the market. Uh, in Cross Street? No. <laughs> no, it's in East Baltimore. Uh, <laughs> on Broadway. And I don't know, it's right by that pizza place across the street from that little pizza store. I don't know. Oh, yeah. It's still there, and because it turns into a decked-out new residence. Probably, or or as a real Baltimorean would say, it ain't there no more. <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, um, what do you think? What do you think about um, Barry Levinson's film? I, I like the guy a lot, especially like Diner, where he has the cults. The woman can't get married unless she knows cults facts, and they do the cults marching theme for the wedding instead of the wedding march. And Tin Man, and movies like you think they're they're interesting and accurate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I think that again, when I first saw Diner, I wasn't living in Baltimore, and and that sort of kind of gave me that sense of the of that longing but the the movie that I really liked that he did was the band that wouldn't die I mean that, that, that the documentary the documentary that, that I couldn't I couldn't watch that without really breaking down that, that tell the story about the mausoleum and the uniforms from that documentary which you know John Zeman who's the president of, of, of the Ravens marching band now but started at the age of 16 in the Colts marching band and um, you know it's interesting because you know when I started to talk about this book to people, everybody has the story of, of 1984 um, really etched. And, you know, when they took everything, they for, the band uniforms were at the dry cleaners. And, you know, they, they uh, went to get... They were not in the Mayflower vans. They were not in the vans. And they were... They made some... You know, they had to kind of approach the dry cleaners with this kind of air of secrecy and somehow got them out of there. Somebody's friend knew somebody who owned the dry cleaners, like it all works here. And... They took them to a mausoleum in a cemetery and, and hid them there. And I think Ursay's wife eventually figured it out and, par- and like allowed it to happen. Somehow there was something. Apparently, she- Harriet Ursay was not the jerk her husband was. 
No. Rashigliano, you would know a little bit about that, wouldn't you? I only know about the dummy of, uh, of Harriet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Harriet and Robert, apparently they were. Like, apparently people said that if Harriet ran the club, or do you disagree, Rosigliano? Uh, I've heard that. This is Mike Rosigliano, the well-known sports uh, cartoonist. I've heard that before, but I, unlike you writers, I'm, the cartoonist is not privy to anything. You know, I just, yeah, but you get to make it up, and then we believe it. Oh, and uh, the DeFrancis family is still looking for you, Rosigliano, by the way. Uh, um, I'll tell you how deep some of this stuff goes. Uh, some of you may be aware that a couple years ago, a local businesswoman decided she was going to own what belongs to all of us. It's a three-letter word. I won't say what it is. Okay, it begins with an H and ends with an N. Okay, and there's an O in the middle of it. <laughs> and um, I was asked to write a column about it. And, you know, in this... In our culture, a vulgarity means nothing. Vulgarity means absolutely nothing. No one's shocked, blah, blah, blah. But this woman had really gotten my goat, and I wanted to think of the most awful, awful thing I could call her, so I called her Robert Ursay in a dress. <laughs> and it stung, and I meant it. How about one more question, and then we'll sign books? Yes, sir? Is, uh, is Anne Lola real, or was she real? Who? Aunt Lola. You know, oh, yeah. Aunt Lola. Lola. The, the Pete Sell story that's run on YPR every year. That has become a tradition, right? Yeah, I, I, that was my attempt my to write a Baltimore Christmas carol. Yeah. Yeah. Are you Italian? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I loved Aunt Lola. She was a sweetheart. Um, she's my father's first cousin. But, you know, so I took Aunt Lola and her sweet nature. Aunt Lola had this strange family where... She had six kids. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this before. So there was like the first three, and then there was a break, and there was a second. The first three were all law-abiding, hardworking, educated members of society. And the, the last three were like dirt balls. I mean, and just, I, I mean, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe parents get tired after the first three, and they just like, um, I mean, night and day. But, uh, so I would walk down the alley every morning, and Aunt Lola's gate hung on a rusty hinge, and she would know that I was walking up to the Greek diner to get a cup of coffee to go to work. And it burned her up that I would give the Greeks, in, in Baltimore, you're something, right? I, was, I talked to a guy today from Oklahoma. He goes, why do you people in Baltimore I always ask what someone is? Like, what are they? Are they this? Are they that? Blah, blah. He goes, in Oklahoma, there's just... Native Americans, white people, Afri and African Americans. That's it. But in Baltimore, you're Greek, you're Irish, you're this, you're that. Where did you go to high school? Where did you go to high school? Exactly. Where did you go to school? Yeah, where did you go to school? And um, she said, why are you giving them Greeks your money, Ralph? I'll, I got coffee right here. And <laughs> so I would go in and have a cup of coffee with Aunt Lola. And then I'd go up to the Greeks and, 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 and get another cup. Thank you all very much.